Alexander Crabb was executed on April 7, 1857, in the Mexican town of Caborca. He and the nearly 70 men with him had held out for several days against the array of Mexican and Amerindian forces that had surrounded the adobe homes they had holed themselves up in. Given the choice between making a desperate run for the U.S. border and surrendering, Crabb chose the latter. Once he had given up, however, the order came down immediately. He and his men were all to be shot. Without ceremony, the executions were carried out and the whole company was cut down. Only a teenage boy survived the massacre. It was said in American newspaper articles at the time that Crab was shot 100 times and that his head was cut off and pickled in a jar of mezcal. This trophy was then sent to Mexico City by the governor of Sonora, either to prove his patriotism or to misdirect from his own potentially scandalous links to Crab, or both. The execution caused outrage across the United States and celebration in Mexico. The Americans saw this as a perfect example of Mexican perfidy, that a double-dealing Sonoran official had let a good man, an entrepreneur and one-time candidate for the U.S. Senate, into being cut down for no justifiable reason. The Mexicans saw this as a victory, a perfect example of how the natives of Sonora had righteously defended themselves and their state against a no-good Yankee land pirate. And really, both had the element of truth. Crabs was the last and most publicized case, but for years Sonora had been dealing with greedy and or opportunistic individuals who kept dreaming of pushing the United States ethos of manifest destiny south. And that is something worth talking about. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 29, The Filibusters. We recognize today that the Gadsden Purchase set the boundary between Mexico and the United States. The line had been drawn, surveyed, and agreed to by both parties. Therefore, it was declared in perpetuity. However, at the time, this was not viewed so much as a done deal. For many Americans, the allure of mineral wealth, specifically from the rumored rich silver mines that still lay just south of the new border, was enough for them to keep pressing to gobble up more and more of Mexico. For example, in the late 1850s, former soldier, mine operator, Southern Arizona resident, and overall colorful character Sylvester Mowry, who we will have much more to say about in coming episodes, was quite vocal about this desire. He wrote, quote, The line at present is irregular in its course and cuts off from our territory the head of the Santa Cruz River and Valley, the Senoida Valley, the San Bernardino Valley, the whole course of the Colorado River from a point 20 miles below the mouth of the Gila. And, worse than all, the control of the head of the Gulf of California, besides a large and extremely valuable silver region well known to both Mexicans and Americans the Planchas de Plata, end quote. 
He then carries this argument to its logical conclusion by saying, quote, The natural outlet for the productions of Arizona must be through a port on the Gulf of California, and the acquisition of California necessitates the possession of Sonora. End quote. To say it a different way, and if I may paraphrase Cicero a bit and put those words into Maori's mouth, the Gadsden Purchase was a fine deed, but it was half done. It was a persuasive argument at the time, and the U.S. would make several more attempts to acquire more land in Mexico. In 1857, President James Buchanan would have the U.S. minister offer another $15 million to buy the north part of Chihuahua, most of Sonora, and Baja California, justifying the request by using many of the same arguments as Maori. Mexico, however, was not interested. As it was, the country had given away too much land already, and it was not about to let the territory-crazed Americans gobble up more. Remember that Santa Ana had been overthrown, for real this time, in part because he had signed the Gadsden Purchase. Instead, the nation started looking at how they could best protect the far-flung Mexican states, just in case the Americans got any ideas. So, by the end of the 1850s, it was apparent that the border was done. The line had been drawn, period, end of story. But, in the early to mid-1850s, there existed a sort of will-they-won't-they atmosphere in the Southwest. The Mexicans kept saying they wouldn't give up any more land, but the Americans on the ground kept hearing rumors that any day now, there'd be new places for the stars and stripes to fly over. And in that atmosphere, some thought that acquisition of northern Mexico was pretty much a done deal and made moves to capitalize on it. Others decided it might be best to, hmm, let's say, expedite the process a little. And it's to these individuals that history has appended the label filibusters. That may sound strange to most people, who know the word filibuster for its modern definition as part of political procedure. You know, talking a lot so the Congress or Parliament can't move along with its business. But if you were lucky enough to have watched The West Wing in the early 2000s, then you might remember one of the characters gives us a short history of the word filibuster. To that, I'll add my own research to say that the word most likely comes from the Dutch word vrijbouter, at least I think it's pronounced that way. Despite my heritage, I do not speak a lick of Dutch. The term Vrijbouter was kicked around French and Spanish a little, which is how it gained some new letters and sounds, ultimately morphing so unrecognizably into filibuster. But the original Dutch meaning is still clear. Vrijbouter means freebooter, which is just another way of saying buccaneer or pirate. In fact, it's due to men like the ones we are going to talk about today that the word filibuster entered into the American lexicon. One source on the word's etymology quoted a Harper's Magazine article from January 1853 that says it's a, quote, term lately imported from the Spanish, end quote. I apologize for this little tangent. I sometimes forget that people don't find etymology as fascinating as I do. But now that we have this in mind, we can get back to history. 
Even before the Gadsden Purchase was finished, men were thinking that the U.S. might grab most of Mexico and made plans accordingly. Early state historian James H. McClintock relates that in 1851, Joseph C. Moorhead, the quartermaster of the California militia, led 100 men to the junction of the Colorado and Gila Rivers, where they taxed and turned back Mexican travelers. Emboldened by this experience, Moorhead decided that it would be a piece of cake to just walk into Sonora and take some land for himself. So the next year, he launched an expedition that would land at three separate points on Baja California to take over. However, this was met by such resistance by locals that, in the words of McClintock, quote, the Californians meekly and at once assumed the role of mining prospectors, end quote. Our next contestant is someone we've already met, the French Count Gaston de Rosette Bourbon. We talked about him back in episode 25, when he made a stab at taking over parts of Sonora in 1852, eventually capturing Hermosillo before falling ill and having to set sail from Guaymas. Just so we'll finish with him, let's jump ahead two years. The Count had lost none of his enthusiasm or determination to truly become the Sultan of Sonora, as he styled himself. Gathering yet another ragtag bunch to help him on his quest, McClintock says the force was around 300, he returned to Mexico in midsummer 1854. This expedition went even worse than the first one. Finding absolutely no support for the idea of carving out an independent nation from Mexico, it all came down to a battle with the current governor and military commander of Sonora. The Battle of Guaymas on July 13, 1854 resulted almost predictably, in a loss for Rosette Barbon and his forces. McClintock's reckoning, which may be a little suspect, says that the French were outnumbered 8 to 1. The Count was taken prisoner, and a month later, on August 13th, he was executed by firing squad in Guaymas. He was 37 years old at the time of his death which makes me feel a little bad because he was my age and I still haven't ever tried to incite a revolution to start my own country. What have I been wasting my life on? But between Rosette Balbon's two attempts, we have one of the big filibustering expeditions, that of William Walker, the so-called gray-eyed man of destiny. Walker was born in Nashville, Tennessee in 1824 into a prominent local family and quickly proved to be something of a genius. He graduated summa cum laude from the University of Nashville at the age of 14. He then went on to study at prestigious medical schools in Edinburgh, Scotland, Heidelberg, Germany, and the University of Pennsylvania, eventually receiving his medical degree at the age of 19. Apparently not satisfied with practicing medicine, he moved to New Orleans to study law as well. By 1850, he was living in San Francisco, where he dabbled in law and journalism while still finding time to participate in three separate duels, because why not? What truly caught his imagination, though, was the 1850 attempt of Venezuela-born Narciso Lopez to capture Cuba using American mercenaries and turn the island into another U.S. holding. The attempt failed, 
though it's possibly to Lopez that credit goes for being the first person labeled in English as a filibuster. Inspired by Lopez, and with the not-too-distant example of Texas having broken away from Mexico, Walker, all 5 foot 2 inches and 120 pounds of him, decided he had to do the same. In 1853, Walker actually sailed to Guaymas to petition the Mexican government to establish an American colony in Sonora, ostensibly to help stop native raiding. Mexico naturally shot down this oh-so-generous offer, but Walker was consumed with his filibustering dream, so he would not be deterred. Upon returning to San Francisco, he began raising funds and recruiting for his adventure. He hit a minor snag when the armed ship he had hired was seized by officials who knew of his scheme because, believe it or not, filibustering and anything like unto it was actually illegal. Still undeterred, Walker transferred his 45-man force to another ship and set sail anyway, arriving in Baja, California in October 1853. Despite his low force numbers, Walker headed south, and this motley crew managed to actually take La Paz, the capital of Baja, California, in early November. He instantly declared that this was now the Republic of Lower California, with himself, of course, as president. Walker instituted the laws of the state of Louisiana, which you will remember he was well familiar with, including that bit about allowing slavery. Emboldened, Walker decided to move the capital northward to Ensenada for a better defensive position in case the Mexicans were actually able to send an army to get their land back. His forces swelled when his law partner, and now vice president, was able to bring another 200-plus men down from San Francisco. But things aren't actually that great on the ground. Walker's little party is running quickly out of food, especially after the ship he had come on suddenly weighed anchor and disappeared over the horizon. And when those new forces arrived, they simply added to the food shortage. Desertions also became commonplace, a problem that will only ramp up from here on out. That's when Walker decided that he needed to think bigger. He declared that his nifty little country would now be known as the Republic of Sonora, and wrote an open letter to Americans and really the entire world, letting them know that this new territory was open for business. Then came the decision to maybe recapture his former momentum by invading Sonora in early 1854. This Walker attempted to do, but met resistance from everyone, including his own starving men, by May, he was down to less than 35 individuals who had not died or deserted. Beaten by his own grand ambitions, Walker returned to the U.S. with his remaining recruits, crossing the border at Tijuana and surrendering their arms to the commander of the military post in San Diego. Historian Rachel St. John uses this surrender to note that while the filibusters had no problems violating Mexican territory with reckless abandon, they still recognized the boundary and land given to the U.S. by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Just to finish up with Walker, he was put on trial in San Francisco for violating the Neutrality Act of 1794. But in the heyday of Manifest Destiny, he was seen more as a hero than villain, and the jury acquitted him after only eight minutes of deliberation. 
Despite all the setbacks in Mexico, Walker was still undeterred in his vision for a country of his own down south. He'll actually take advantage of instability down in Nicaragua to become its president in 1856, before being ousted by an alliance of Central American states the next year. In fact, in Costa Rica they celebrate April 11th as Juan Santa Maria Day, after a national hero who fought to drive Walker out. To make a long story short, Walker never did learn his lesson, and the would-be revolutionary would fall into the hands of Honduran authorities while plotting to take back Nicaragua. He would then be executed by firing squad on September 12, 1860, at the relatively young age of 36. Okay, these stories are now definitely giving me something of an inferiority complex. And with that, we come to the last and possibly greatest filibustering attempt of them all, and where we started today, with Henry Alexander Crabbe. Not much is written about Crabbe's early life, but he was born in 1827 in Nashville, Tennessee, where he was schoolmates with, yep, you guessed it, William Walker. Presumably for not very long, seeing as Walker was done with college by the time he was 14, in 1849, we find Crabb in California as part of the gold rush, having established himself at Stockton, which was a major supply point for the mines. I should also add in here that I have one source that claims he had to flee Nashville after killing a man. Once in California, he started setting himself up in politics as a prominent Whig, serving in the state assembly and senate in the early 1850s. During this time, he would also testify on behalf of his old acquaintance, William Walker, during the latter's 1854 trial. Crabbe held many of the same beliefs as Walker, and I've even seen it reported that he had wanted to join the first of Walker's expeditions to Central America. This never happened, though the outcome would be pretty much the same as if he had. After the Whig party fizzled out, Crabbe ran for the U.S. Senate in 1855 as a member of the short-lived Know-Nothing Party. As an editorial aside, I still think this is the best and maybe most apt name for any political party ever. However, senators were still elected directly by state legislatures at this time, and Crabbe's bid was shot down by a powerful state senator who considered him too much of a southerner. And that's when the thought of following Walker's example really started going through Crabbe's head. You see, after moving to California, Crabbe had met and married Filomena Ainza, who was the daughter of a once prominent Sonoran family, most of which had relocated to California during the gold rush. Together, Crabbe and his in-laws began talking about carving out a little colony for themselves down in Sonora. To that end, he and his brother-in-law, Agustin Ainza traveled to Hermosillo in 1856 to meet with officials about their colonization plan. At this time, Mexico as a whole was undergoing the start of a civil war, now known as the Reform War, as liberals and conservatives struggled to control the country. In Sonora, that took the form of yet another attempt to unseat the ruling boss, our old friend Manuel Maria Gandra who had held the governorship ten times between 1837 and 1856. 
You might remember that at the end of our last episode, I name-dropped a new political player, Ignacio Pesquera. Well, he's about to become this decade's version of José Cosme de Urrea, that is to say, Gandra's arch-nemesis. At this point, Pesquera and his faction are in a knock-down, drag-out political fight against Gandra and his allies. That's why he was ready to listen when Crab and Einza approached him, promising men and money for his cause if he would agree to their colony. Now, the exact details of what bargain might have been struck, or even if Pesquera had any intention of following through on his end, are not known. What few details are out there, mostly from the early state historians, indicate that Crab promised to support Pesquera's bid, and in return, he would be granted a strip of land bordering southern Arizona, which he would colonize with mainly repatriated Mexicans. Crab immediately returned to San Francisco in June 1856 to recruit for the project. The only sign of trouble on the horizon was the fact that Ainsa was jailed in Hermosillo on a charge of high treason, but he was released a month later without it ever coming to trial. As Ainsa continued to travel through parts of Mexico in the following months, it started to leak out that the goal of the colony might be to create an independent republic out of Sonora, Sinaloa, and Baja California, with the eventual aim to be annexed into the United States. Crab, meanwhile, was able to organize maybe around 150 men that started for Sonora in early 1857. They would pass by Fort Yuma and then press on to the Mexican town of Sonoida on the newly established international boundary, arriving on March 25, 1857. And this is where things really fall apart. Because, in the meantime, Pesquera was successful in toppling Gandra, so he didn't need an American ally anymore. And with anti-American sentiment swirling around because of the rumors about the expedition, it definitely wasn't the right time for the new governor to be allying himself with this filibuster whose party was made up of mostly Americans, despite his promise to help repatriate Mexicans. Suddenly, Pesquera was ordering everyone to rise up and defend the state against this invading party. Crab at this point had only roughly half his men with him, the rest still on its way. There was some disagreement about how many he had, with one source saying only 69 and another as high as 89. He made the bold and slightly crazy plan to proceed anyway, sending a note to the prefect of Altar saying that he was a legal colonizing company, more people were coming, and that he was going toward his destination, despite the rumors he had heard about the prefect poisoning wells and using other methods to resist him. If blood is to flow with all its horrors, he wrote, on your head be it, and not on mine. This letter was forwarded to Pesquera, who instantly sent his own letter, full of rhetoric that might be seen as overcompensating for having entered into a deal with Crab in the first place. It contains lines such as, No pity, no generous sentiments for that rabble, and let them die the death of wild beast. And it closes with, Long live Mexico, death to the filibusters. 
Still pushing forward, Crab and his expedition met Mexican forces outside of Caborca on April 1, 1857. The Americans were able to drive the Mexicans back into the city, where they fortified themselves in a church, while the Americans took over some nearby houses. Crab's men would actually use either dynamite or black powder in an attempt to get into the church, but it didn't work. Then, Mexican reinforcements showed up a few days later, including some Tohono O'odham soldiers. These fired flaming arrows until the roofs of the buildings where Crab and his men were hiding had all caught fire. And at this point, Crab was told to surrender. The early American sources here, trying to play up anti-Mexican sentiment and show how villainous they were, say that he and his men were told that they would receive a fair trial if they did so. Take that with a grain of salt. I cannot guarantee that any such promise was ever actually offered. However, we know from some 20-some-odd minutes ago when we started this episode that the surrender will happen, but this trial will not. The party was executed then and there on April 7th, a little more than a week since crossing the border. The small aside to this is that the leader of the Mexican reinforcements who had arrived disagreed with the order and refused to carry it out. He even rescued a 16-year-old boy from being shot, whose name is only given as Evans in the sources I have, and he took him to Hermosillo. The Mexican forces then proceeded to find the rest of the expedition that might have been left behind at Sonoida. Sixteen more were found en route to Caborca. These were brought into the city to suffer the same fate as the rest of Crab's men. Four more were found to be still in Sonoida and were quickly dispatched as well. Meanwhile, news that the expedition was in desperate straits had filtered north to the rest of Crab's men who had been trying to recruit around Tucson. Led by Granville Ori and Charles Tozar, a group of roughly 25 headed south immediately to help. It's only when they had gotten near Caborca that they realized the full truth of what had happened. Next came a running battle back to the border, with some being injured as they crossed the boundary line. This party was in a sorry state as it limped, sick and injured, back into Tucson. The fate of the Crab Expedition became an international incident as newspapers ran hyperbolic accounts starting May 2, 1857, so nearly a month after the actual event. This is where you see reports about the massacre claiming that the bodies were left in the streets for the coyotes and pigs to eat. However, Charles Poston, writing just a few years after the fact, says that he spoke personally with the priest in Coborca, who assured him that a trench was dug to give the dead a Christian burial. McClintock adds his own flourish, saying that the dead men's teeth were knocked out so Mexican soldiers could claim gold fillings. And, as I said at the start, we hear that Crab's head was preserved in a jar of mezcal and sent along to Mexico City by Pesquera to demonstrate what a loyal soldier he was. Perhaps a similar desire is why Pesquera also cut off trade with Arizona at this time. Rumor and tales flew everywhere that Americans were not welcome on Mexican soil, and vice versa. Through its minister to Mexico, the U.S. protested loudly about the fate of the expedition, including the four people who had been killed in Sonoida. A number of witnesses were now claiming that the four had actually been on the U.S. side of the line at the time. However, Mexico stood its ground on this one. 
They maintained that the group had been filibusters. They had violated Mexican sovereignty, and their punishment had fit the crime. That didn't stop Mexico, or Pesquera in particular, from being vilified by the press and popular sentiment, or Crab being built up as a tragic American figure. Early state historian Thomas Farish describes Crab as, quote, a man of scholarly attainments, of integrity and moral worth, end quote. He also said, quote, the friends of Crab in that state, meaning California, will always hold the name of Pesquera in abhorrence, being well convinced that his death was caused by deceit and treachery. End quote. Whether Crab was hero or villain, martyr or criminal, his attempt was the last major push to take Sonora. Though occasionally reports would surface of other plots or schemes. In the 1860s, Mexico would claim that William McKendry Gwynn, a former senator from California, had tried to establish a colony in Sonora with French backing. This accusation may not have been just hot air. Though never directly tied to any specific incursion or party, Gwynn's name does seem to pop up a lot when you're reading about the filibusters, particularly Walker and Crabbe. Again in 1889-1890, we see reports of English and American capitalists striving to split Baja California off of Mexico. But overall, Crab's pickled head was a horrible enough image to kill the idea of trying to take over more of Mexico. The May 9th, 1857 edition of the San Diego Herald, while chronicling the efforts of Ori and Tozar to aid Crab, sums up the entire expedition in language that could be said for each and every filibuster. Quote, All was bad management, want of experience, and a clear rushing upon a deadly fate. End quote. The one thing the filibusters did prove, however, is that the line established by the Gadsden Purchase would hold. On one side was the United States. On the other was Mexico. People would cross it with impunity or even rash abandon going forward, but there was never a doubt where one country ended and another began. And with that now firmly established, it's time to build up the United States side of the line. So join me next week as we look at one such attempt and follow the man who started as something of a filibuster, but wound up being known as the father of Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.